0: Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry. Inside the battle over school food and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: Good evening and welcome to Foment about, about It on heritageradionetwork.org.
2: I'm Mary Izette.
1: I'm Chris Kuzmi.
2: And I'm Rachel Jacobs. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented.
1: Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and right here on Network.org future us just did that we just said hello to the show that was, future us knows exactly what's going on let me tell you about today this is yester me talking this is yester chris i had i've been getting up really early last week uh, getting all sorts of things going on at fifth hammer we did it we got a compressor to the roof at 5 a.m we've been getting up at 7 a.m getting the cold box together and things are really freaking excited so this is yester me in real time anyway, okay and now
2: we're gonna go though. for real all right, we're here in the studio with Ken Fornitero of Cultures Group. Welcome, Ken. Hi. How are you?
3: I'm good. And how are you?
2: So uh, I think we met you actually through the fermentation ferment meetup and then at Ferment Ferment.
3: ferment yeah.
2: And um and, and then something
3: at Brooklyn Brooklyn fermentation festival too. Yeah, right? yes. yeah exactly. And
2: I finally got to taste some of your well, ferments I'm good. There. Did you
3: debut my uh, honeydew sake?
2: Yes. And be, I had uh, the beef broth. The beef broth Oh, sake? the beef
1: sake. That was yes, great. Yes, yes. Let's dive right into that. Why not? That was because wild. We, because we brought it up. What, what, what is beef broth sake?
3: Well, um, you know what sake is. It's like a dual fermentative process uh, liquid, really, that uh, depends on both yeast from what's called the maromi and also uh, koji, which is uh, aspergillus or Rhizae Uh, inoculated rice Um, if you're doing some other kind of drink like shochu you you might use a different type of grain or even like sweet potatoes but with sake it's always rice right Um, and so uh, there's a long history about you know how did uh, sake actually evolve how did uh, uh, miso evolve you know what is uh, uh, something called hishio which seems to be like several thousand years old and basically how it all seemed to, to uh, evolve was that somehow someone figured it out and why they figured this out is just one of those mysteries that like we're really glad they did Yeah. Uh, but uh, so somehow some um, rice got inoculated with uh, a mold uh, an aspergillus that's uh, benign and uh, actually it turns out to be the orizai and uh, probably like 12 different types of aspergils are really very very useful uh, commercially and, and for um, creating what we call transformative processes which is, which is actually what our organization is all about and I'll talk about that a little later um, but so when uh, the whole thing first started what happened was they realized that this, the enzymatic activities from this rice were able to do amazing things to all different kinds of foods. Um, and so originally, I think before sake was actually invented, I think what it was was that it, they would like throw something that they had a lot of um, into uh, this like environment where there was this rice inoculating. And they realized that you could make, if you let the process go out far enough, you could actually make alcohol, which is what they really wanted to do. Um, so eventually, some somewhere down the line, they decided they would split the processes up and say, okay, we're only gonna make this drinking sake with like um, rice, um, then we're gonna like uh, make this stuff called hisho, which eventually turned into miso, Um, If you wanted to use uh, what was on hand usually, which is typically how most things are really invented out of necessity, right? And you would make shoyu, which is like basically the the soy sauce part of it. So um, one of the things we always do too is try and, and see if we can like go back and recreate a specific situation where, okay, why did somebody decide... All of a sudden they wanted to like separate out making sake from uh, preserving beef or uh, preserving fish, mm-hmm. for example, fish misos and uh, fish sakes are probably more common than you would ever know about but really? you know yeah you 're not going to see yeah. you 're not going to see much uh, uh, fish sake out there, but right. what you will see, although unfortunately, like most of these real old time traditional uh, things that were happening um, uh, like some people, uh, some uh, Japanese people for example uh, who are uh, remember like in uh, the Akita prefecture for example uh, when specific times when, when there's a lot of lightning out right in the early, so like in April um, the next day everyone would go to either the, their uh, ocean or uh, people would come around and they would, these vendors would have huge, huge buckets of a certain kind of fish, right? Mm-hmm. Because they all like, um, knew that they could get incredibly inexpensive uh, fish because they all kind of, I think they all kind of got killed by this lightning. Um, and uh, that was really the first time uh, that the whole concept of, like I think, fish sauce that they kind of knew how to make but that that kind of like came about from that because
2: um, they had it sounds like because they had excess.
3: Yeah, I mean that that's True. the whole the right. whole concept of, of anything that uh, uh, you preserve or you uh, ferment. I think really is not only to apply the, the whole transformative uh, right. process to it, which creates I mean, the transformative process itself, almost out of necessity, um, is used. Uh, not just to ferment something, but to actually transform the actual product to make it last so you can survive. I mean, there are times when um, any culture, I think, has severe uh, starvation, basically, because something happens in the environment that they're not able to control. And I think that when people started to realize that you could preserve something and you could actually alter that transformative process in some way, to your benefit, I think that's when people said, okay, let's start doing this uh, on a regular basis. Um, so they had all these things, and people were like, okay, what can we do with this excess that can be spectacular? Not just for survival purposes, but for really enjoying like something great. Right. And that was when all these great uh, sake houses, for example, came to be. And they, they very closely guarded their secret of, like, what they were doing. Um, right. so, one of the things that you wouldn't do at that point would, would be to, like, make fish sake or to make beef sake. It would, it would right. be like, you know, why right. would you do that, right? They had to figure out something to do with uh, things like soybeans or millet or wheat, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's when it really, it, I mean, the brilliance of what people decided to do really took off. So when we made our our beef sake or our honey sake, what we thought we would do is like, okay, let's go back and see what we can push the limits on and see how this will taste. And um, it's really no different than saying, say, you know, if you use the enzymes that are naturally present in something, um, you can create amazing things. And, uh, you know, nowadays, like, there's this concept that if you're having sake, during a meal, you're not going to eat rice as well, right? To me, it, it kind of like parallels what happened, like uh, when this huge wave of like Italian immigrants came to the United States, like maybe a hundred years ago, maybe hundred fifty years ago, and they were primarily from Sicily, right? And they decided uh, to create a cuisine that
0: uh,
3: Americans would like, so. At that point, it seemed like everything Italian food was like really, really heavy on the garlic and really heavy on the oregano, for example. Uh, And that was like what Italian food was. When in fact, if you were actually from Italy, like, you just, you would never see that kind of food. And I think the same thing happened with uh, Japanese food and Japanese sake, where things like, kind of like really low-grade, inexpensive Hot sake was like the the sake that was available anywhere, and it's just if you went to Japan, um, yeah, you're you're gonna find like some really like, you know, the fast food type of places that they have in Japan. Unfortunately, more and more of nowadays, uh, you're gonna find things like hot sake, but uh, real Japanese food, and you know, which is just really one of the most brilliant cuisines ever invented. Um, you would not even think of serving hockey. Sake hot. Ah, I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, that typically that nuance. denotes an inferior grade sake where they put the stuff, uh, brewer's alcohol, basically. Yeah, right. or, so know. let's yeah. talk
2: about, the. do you mind talking about your beef broth sake process? Uh,
3: if you want. I mean, I, I think it's more like
1: a... a Instead, uh, in lieu of water, you use... Yeah, beef, I used beef broth, broth, right? Yeah, and you did the same thing with the. You with could the do fish that
3: broth. with a lot of different things, like with the uh, honeydew sake that I made. I mean, besides, actually, this one was a little more planned than the beef broth one, where we actually took um, like something that we knew would collect the yeasts from the honeydew. So we actually went into a, honey, a field of honeydew melons oh, cool. with it and collected and then, the yeah. yeast from there, right? Which is kind of a um, Kind of a hard thing to do nowadays. Uh, like, if you're making sake, um, I think there are like 14 yeasts or something that are really like, uh, that are so well controlled by the sake brewers, like whatever it is. Um, and uh, in fact, the entire manufacture of, uh, manufacturing of sake in Japan is really heavily and tightly controlled, where like you're not even allowed to, it's against the law. Um, and they're actually strict about it, too, where you, you can't make something like doboruku, which is like this farm-style um, sake, which is it's kind of like a rice beer um, mm-hmm. that doesn't go through as many ref- refinement processes. You're not going to see any fining of, like, you know, whatever. It's like a Nagori sake, right. but still with the mash, etc. It says illegal, so, though,
1: because it's so, yeah, so well, raw. Yeah, it's illegal.
3: Uh, and also, that's how you could, because... Um, Every time you add something to a maromi, or, or, or like for starting from the shubo of the whole thing, you're going to create more alcohol. Like every time you add additional rice to something, you, um, and your yeast is, you know, really active and going and wild enough and wild, um, which everyone has access to, right? If, regardless of whether you have. Uh, a sake access to a sake yeast an official sake yeast you can get the yeast right, right. Um, which is really why we decided that we would, would do that and say okay what would happen if you know this we took some beef broth which is would not be completely uncommon uh, or f- fish broth for that matter right um, and we took our own yeast and said okay let's just start dumping uh, some inoculated rice and in some koji and um. See what happens, and we kept doing that, and we
1: actually ref- refined it, we strained it, we did the whole like you know. So I did not get to taste it. I a thing you Could, can you give me some uh, kind of flavor notes on what it was like some if more. you compared?
3: To it? Uh. I, I'm. I it t- kind of tastes like a beef. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, it yeah, so I t-
2: It was very rich and earthy. I mean, yeah. it tasted like beef broth in it, but it had. I mean, it didn't taste harsher by no. any means. It was. It's yeah. very smooth, and it's like drinking a slightly alcoholic beef broth. Yeah. Huh.
1: Do you now want to add sake to your beef and barley soup, Mary?
2: No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. It, it, what? It's not Would like that because this tasted okay. very. I mean, it tasted like a really good broth. Yeah. That. Had right. t- more dimensions. I think. Yeah.
1: yeah. It sounds. Yeah. I mean,
3: that's a whole. Con- it's like yeah. l- it's
1: layering the umami of something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Really. Have, have you? So, have you done it with the fish, uh, with fish market? we have one yet? going right now. Yet. you have one yeah, going right yeah. now. Right. We
3: also have a lot of, di- a lot of different fish misos and uh, fish hechios going right now. It's kind of been funny We're, we've been like heavily lobbying this really, really incredible fish market. Like, this is two blocks away from where I live. Like every day, we see them throw out like just tons and tons and tons. Of things like fish guts and heads, et cetera. And we're like, yeah. "No, don't do that! Please give them to us, right?" And they're like, <laughs> yeah. "We can't do that." Like, and it's like, "Why not?" Um, and uh, technically, uh, nowadays, I mean, everyone's always worried about liability, right? Right, right? right. And so, if, for example, and I know this because uh, one, I've been a chef and working mm-hmm. in the food industry for like forty years now, and I know, like, you know,
1: I'd like to dive into. That there's
3: naturally. nothing more interesting. To an owner of a a food business, is then liability and not getting sued. All right, I mean that's really an important thing. Um, uh, So, basically, if for example they gave us these things and and uh, because of the way they particularly. Uh, maintain hygiene levels at their store. If, for example, there was any bleach or ammonia or anything that got on there, right. we could end up really like hurting people really badly. Yeah. And then sue them for you know I mean. Yeah. Uh, or um, if uh, I mean, and it also would uh, require that their employees specifically treat something in a specific way that they're not paid to do. You know what I mean? Like, um, uh, I mean, you can't even get bones out of this. These people, when you go in and buy fish, like, they'll do whatever you want to the fish, but they're not going to give you the bones. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they won't give you the bones nowadays is the same, it's the liability issue. It's like, no... We don't want your kids choking on bones, and we don't want you choking on bones because you're coming come back and sue us. Right. And right. well, that's what that's about. C- crazy culture. So, yeah. so we're
2: going to take a brief break, and we will be right. right back with more Fascinating Ferments with Ken Fornitero. Heritage Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor
0: of Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Foods got its start when Patrick Martin's first stepped foot onto Frank Reese's Kansas Farm in 2001. Back then, Frank was the only farmer in America raising true heritage turkeys with recorded lineages tracing back more than 150 years.
2: Patrick knew instantly he'd found a unique moment, an opportunity to go beyond acknowledging these breeds as being jeopardized and to actually do something to save them. Patrick asked Frank to ramp up production and made a promise to him that if he would raise them, Heritage Foods USA would sell them.
0: That was the moment that Heritage Foods slogan, Eat 'em to Save 'em, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come.
2: Plus, Heritage Breeds just taste a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code Heritage Radio for two free pork chops with your first order, brother.
1: And we're back. Welcome back to Ferment About It. We're in the studio with Ken Fornatero. Okay. <laughs> so you
2: said, what is it called? Ha- hashi? Hishio. Hishio. How do you spell that?
1: H-I-S-H-I-O,
3: yeah.
2: Okay. And what is the difference? What is it exactly? Because I know I've heard of it and I think I've had it, but it's a relative of miso and all of these other ferments. But what uh, is the. I kind think of it was actually
3: down? the original miso that eventually. I mean, uh, basically, starting out. Uh, and I think you could linguistically, if you went back and look at, like, the actual kanji that's used to designate, et cetera, uh, it started off, like, just about everything in food. It seems to have started off in China, right? I mean, they, we call it jang, the stuff that you would make from fermenting a certain thing. Um, there's different kinds of uh, uh, applications, different kinds of, like, koji. Yep. And there's, like, so many different kinds of koji itself um for most of asia you would use what's primarily called a mochi koji which is not just aspergillus oryzae it's got like um uh, uh, it's got like it's more inclined to have something that you could actually create tempeh with like this rhizopus, etc um, so primarily before miso was like segregated out they would take like huge barrels of whatever it is uh, originally, it was just uh, soybeans, really, that um, they would inoculate somehow, uh, usually with the oryza In Japan, it was the aspergillus oryzae. In other cultures, um, the Koreans, the Chinese, et cetera, they would create more like, don- they would create their different types of um, material that would- they would use different substrates, Right. But, in Japan, it was primarily soybeans and when it was determined that soybeans made a really, really heavy, dense soy sauce, they would then decide okay well, why don 't we like cut it with some uh, wheat right? or uh, I, I think actually although i 'm having a hard time actually uh, validating i think primarily they use millet though and um, but if you were doing this at home which is what we're actually trying to encourage people to do, um, you would, uh, you know, I, I think it's easier to make show first before you get into miso, although, you know, I don't know, it might it might be easier to make uh, miso because um, now you can access, like, already pre-inoculated rice pretty easily. I mean, right. uh, if you're really desperate for something, we'll just call us or email us, we'll send you something, right? Because <laughs> we're, we're not into, like, that part of like selling that stuff yet yeah, we're more into like getting you understand what the process is um, and uh, hopefully getting some kind of sponsorship from people who will like want us to teach you the process as opposed to sell you whatever the product is Right. right so that's I think our difference yeah. between right,
2: so let's circle back about that sure. so what exactly, what is, how did you get into fermentation? What is your relationship with that? And what exactly is, is Cultures Group and, and the Goals? Yeah,
3: who is okay. us? Okay, where within? Yeah, exactly. um, Who is us? <laughs> I, uh, the
2: royal I have
3: a really wild, I mean, um, I have a really wild history with uh, fermentation and uh, cultures, et cetera. Um, both of my grandmothers are ridiculously skilled fermenters, gardeners, um, hunters uh, food creators I mean they're really just astonishing and in both cases uh, one because my one grandmother came from uh, uh, basically when she was a child she grew up in the Swiss mountains um, very very near uh, a lot of Italian influences as well so um, by the time I was like five years old my father who was uh, started off as a an incredible baker, making like sourdough breads. Um, it just like, both my grandmothers and my father insisted that I just like hang out with them, and I loved it, I really did. Um, so, when I was five years old, I just started like, you know, hanging out in uh, bakeries with my father, and uh, going to the fields with my, both my grandmothers, and like collecting stuff. And uh, my grandmother, uh, the, the, this, this Italian one, um, had this amazing root cellar which if you were like a five year old kid you would think oh my god this is the coolest place ever right and it was and it took me a while to figure out exactly what was going on down there but she used to make this uh, tomato sauce that was like famous everywhere as far as I, I had known because people would like beg her for some of this stuff and what she was doing she was making this tomato sauce um, with a lot of different really sweet uh, herbs and spices And she was putting it down at, like, maybe this 45, 50 degree Fahrenheit temperature and just basically letting it lacto-ferment for, Mm. like, six or seven months a year. So she would always have it. And I'm like, it took me a while to figure out why is this so incredibly sweet? And, like, the depth of it was amazing, right? And uh, so she finally um, uh, decided, okay, she was going to let me into all this stuff. I may be, like, 12 years old. And that was when um, also this uh, neighbor uh, of mine, uh, had, and she brought me back this thing, which was, uh, it was kind of like a little book. It kind of looked like a silk wallet, right? And I'm like, what is this thing? And there's really gorgeous paper inside. I said, what is this used for, right? Um, and I thought about it for days and days. And finally I said, what is this, right? <laughs> to her, she said, um, well, in Japan, if you, if you ever go out, you, know, you always have something inside of your kimono, right? You always carry one of these around in case you have to use the bathroom. And what that was was actually toilet paper. But, you know, if it, <laughs> it's just the, like, it was like the Japanese way of doing something. It was just so elegant and so chic, you know. But, mm-hmm. So this is great. So, um, yeah, um, and, and just about that time as well, my sister, older sister who was going to college, In Boston, decided she would bring me home because she knew I loved bread baking. At that point, she brought me back a copy of the Tassahara Bread Book, right? And I'm like, "Oh my God, right? This is an amazing book!" And um, that was how I realized, uh, like two or three years later, when um, I went to college really early. Actually, Uh, I went to. uh, Visit her a lot in Boston when I was going to Brown University, right? And uh, when I was uh, 19 years old, uh, I decided, okay, you know what? I really, really, really want to be a chef um, because I, I already knew so much. So I walked into this place called Lermitage, um which was probably about 100 feet away from this store that is just opened called Erewhon. Right, and who should be hanging out at Erewhon but people like uh, William Shirtleaf and uh, Akiko Ayago and uh, Michio Kushi and Abilene Kushi and I just kind of like went there every day and like really uh, made friends with everyone there I actually made my first miso there with Bill Um, I mean this was like the most amazing place in the world. Within two months they made me the executive chef of this place and the entire... Cuisine. Um, I had been studying, uh, but this place called the Hermitage was really, had such an incredible lasting impression on me as far as fermentation went. One, because it was all about uh, food using basically Russian ingredients, either wild or wet, and applying French principles. And while I was there, I mean, you know, something like... uh, techmali sauce for example which is like umboshi plums you'd say why, why are the Russians using umboshi plums they would, uh, the Georgians would marinate these chickens uh, in like garlic and uh, wine, uh, oranges etc and really like grill them uh, mm-hmm. until they were like very brown and then serve them with this fermented uh, umboshi plum paste that we would also put Uh, coriander, fresh coriander Mm. in. I mean, it was like, it it was amazing. It really (laughs) was. was Um, That's going to be in, we're we're currently writing three books. That's hopefully going to be in one of the books on Russian ferments. But the part where the fermentation part really explodes as well is like, when I was executive chef for the the Hermitage, um, we were lucky enough to have, I don't know if you know much about the Boston area at that time, but like in, in certain uh, places uh, where there was, was hu- a huge influx of either Russian Jews coming in like in Alston or Brookline, etc. I mean, I, I met like uh, Barney Frank, for example. I met when I was 19 years old <laughs> awesome. in, in, in Brookline, for example, and because um, and, and got him to actually come and talk at Brown. But uh, all these like women would come and work for me. And uh, I remember talking to, to Sandra Katz about this once, about, like, because he asked me once, where, where did you learn this stuff? Like, um, these women would come, and it took me a while to figure out exactly what they were doing. Like, we, on our menu, we had a lot of different fermented things. Like, we would make um, these buckwheat pancakes, blini, basically. And um, I was always, like, um, I would always buy yeast, right? And they just never wanted to use it. I'm like, why? How? I don't understand why you're doing this. But every time I would come in, someone would be taking something out of like her pocket or like, you know, <laughs> and putting it into the stuff. And like, two or three hours later, we had this explosively rising like buckwheat batter. I was like, how are you doing this? <laughs> yeah. Right? And so finally, I realized um, that basically they were they were using the same yeast that they had somehow smuggled in with them. From wherever they were coming from basically in Eastern Europe I mean and so that was when um, I decided okay uh, tell me everything you know about like why are you doing this fermentation wise and they would show me the most amazing ways to like preserve or ferment everything from vegetables to meat to fish etc and especially mushrooms too which um, I think one of the, the most unknown things about Russian cuisine for example is that their their use of mushrooms and their fermentation of mushrooms and the growth of mushrooms, wild gathering of mushrooms is incredible. It's intense. I mean, they've been doing this for hundreds of years, yeah. and it's just not something that um, it's not talked about. Uh, or celebrated, yeah. Isn't yeah it isn't wild, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's it's just one of the amazing things. But yeah, the Russians have a very long history. It's not just just about kvass or you know, um, the beets like you know, the flotsky wash or whatever, right? Yeah. It's yeah. really a pretty extensive, um, uh, almost like a hunter-gatherer type of thing where they would—they uh, ama- were usually amazing hunters. They knew exactly where like, certain mushrooms grew or certain wild plants, etc. Yeah. Um, and a long time, I think the, the popularity of like the whole samovar culture there and their teens depended a lot on what wild roots and uh, herbs they were actually able to, to grow. Um. There was that part, and then there was a the whole thing with uh. I decided to become really uh, involved with Japanese food uh, through uh, Bill and uh, Akiko, and um, and went like uh, to that whole like uh, Berkshire Shires area sure, where yeah. there were like there were the first like pop-up restaurant type things where when the weather was good they would just go and. They would just, like, start making food. That's where I, like, discovered what perilla was. And um, we used to make tons and tons of miso and, like, shoyu and, and hisho, which um, I think if I were to explain show it's more like, okay, if you're going to make miso, for example, you're going to need, like, some kind of beans, right, or legumes. Or you can do some other, you know, you're going to just about anything with koji as long as there's carbohydrates there. It's all about the, the and and, you know. Basically, you want to break things down into simple sugars. Uh, with miso, um, depending on what kind of koji you make, and this is why it's really important, on what you're using to make your koji with and what kind of spores you use, right. um, because you want to make koji that can break down, that, that's going to create proteases and lipases and not just amylases, which is what you would do if you are going to make... Beer. You know, yeah, beer yeah. Or, or sake or whatever it is, right? So, um, hisho, I would think, is... You would want to make koji and put it in an environment where if you had any leftover beef, if you had any leftover fish, anything like that, um, and you would throw it in there, it would probably be twice as much liquid as a miso would have. I think actually at a certain point the whole concept of tamari, the stuff that comes off of miso, I think that that originally, when they first started making it, when it was a higher volume of liquid to whatever it was, I think that was the original Hishio. Hishio. Yeah. And then whatever the maromi part of it was, which is like, you know, whatever you would like strain out, if you were doing it with uh, legumes or beef or whatever you were doing it with, or fish, um, that would eventually become the miso part. So like prison
0: way, but with food. Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. And, and, so, and with soy sauce, the, the same thing. I think... You know, that was just another part of that entire family sure. of things. It's really, I think, it's a liquid content, yeah. thing, yeah, which is why, interestingly, um, and here's another thing that people have, I think, kind of like not as much picked up on in, in misos. is that um, misos with like dried vegetables, for example, like daikon, etc. There's a whole. It gets to a point where um, there's very little separation between what skimono or, or pickled vegetables are. Uh, which you can use a lot of different things to pickle and actual miso. Like if you were making miso in the countryside, you would make sure you had it layered with vegetables as well. Right. So during the period, like you'd take out like your half dried daikon, et cetera, and eat it and you'd say, wow, this is an amazing thing. Right. So now, yeah, cause we're, cause we're uh, yeah. out
2: of time uh, yeah. and we we're have still, to talk about culture. Yeah, we still, yeah. so, yeah. still, so still got to talk about years, the wheat. Yeah. So you spent 40 <laughs> years in the, in the food industry as a chef. Um, so, what made Everywhere. you just go and start Cultures Group and what is, um, what is Cultures yeah. Group? What is cultures and how can group? people find out about it?
3: Our organization, Cultures Group, is based on um, Wu Tsing, which is like basically five element um, Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Wu Tsing? Wu Tsing, yeah. Wu Tsing. And uh, it's all about, um, well, the five elements of water, wood, fire, earth, and metal. Right? and everything in life uh, including eating food and enjoying food and what happens in your microbiome is all about transformative processes and how each of these elements interact so um, so why did we decide to create culture Troop? and who are we um, we're primarily uh, I have a background in microbiology right, and I had, I had like a 20-year period during which I said, uh, basically I was dragged from the kitchens of uh, of Bloomingdale's where they knew uh, I was like basically dragged out in like 1980 and said, listen, we have this serious, serious crisis going on in the community and it's called AIDS and we need you to come and work doing something to to help us do this. So mm-hmm. I went, I became the... Uh, uh, deputy director of this place called Community Research Initiative, um, hung out with all these people at ampAR we signed up for conferences, got very, very heavily involved with like Act Up. I helped to co-found the Treatment Data Committee. Um, basically, what we did during that 20-year period was change the entire drug approval process, um, created actual effective therapies for HIV and AIDS, um, Really created, I think, what is the most uh, powerful and successful community-based movement ever in the history of the United States, and that's actually how, when people ask me how I know Sander Katz, for example, Sander and I were arrested uh, like together, uh, trying to take over the FDA. Right? <laughs> he was in an affinity group um, that, uh, So that's how I know Sander. and uh, mm-hmm. so I spent like a, I took like a twenty-year hiatus to do that. And it was really, you know, because uh, it was desperately needed. I mean, if you saw what was happening to every kitchen that I'd ever been in, if you saw what was happening to the food industry at that point, uh, not to mention the, the world itself, I mean, it was unbelievable. And you'd, like, you know, you could go into a kitchen, and all of a sudden you'd see somebody who was really, really sick. And then two weeks later, they would not be there anymore. It's like, what happened to this person? Um, I was living on the uh, uh, Lower East Side at the time, and, like, at first, uh, you'd walk down the street, and you'd see, like, entire houses that were blocked off with this police tape, right? Because someone had died of AIDS, like... And sometimes it was someone you had talked to like a few days earlier. It was like just unbelievable what was going on. So I said, "All right, you know <laughs> the world can wait for my cooking skills right yeah. I need to do this um, and so I mean during that period of time i, I wrote I wrote probably about a hundred different research protocols for some specific drugs that turned out to be really uh, effective treatments. Um, That's what it is. Yeah, we created this thing called Parallel Track. We created this... uh, We sped up the drug approval process. Like, we took, like, 10 years off of everything at least. Uh, We demanded and got the ability to... uh, Because back then, um, in research, uh, as in society, I mean, the concept of allowing a woman, for example, um, or uh, someone who was not really like well insured or or wealthy to participate in a research study which at that point was the only way you were going to get any treatments for HIV they they just would not hear of it. People did not want to move on on a lot of different things um, the racism, yeah I mean the racism was just unreal yeah. the first um study from the AIDS clinical trial group, for example from the National Institute of health um, the average participant like eighty nine percent of the people in the first trial were white men with PhDs okay I mean it's, it's astonishing not
2: representative right? of the overall
3: population yeah at, at all so I mean we had to push and push and push and push really hard for a long period of time and I think really the most unfortunate thing is that just like in the last I don't know like ten years maybe five even uh, it's like we're back to square one again with that.
1: Well, no, it's not a little
3: disappointing. It's It's really awful. So, but yeah, so basically what we decided, why we decided to create Cultures Group. Um, So, according to the Wu saying, our five element theory, um, there are five different ways that you can approach food, you can approach life, you can approach transformative processes, etc. And so we, our five points are that most of all, like, you have, to, you have to metabolize food to live. I mean, it's a survival thing, right? So, and unfortunately, still today in this world, people don't have equal access at all to the same resources as other people. Um, and sometimes you really need to use extra, extra, like, knowledge that once used to be common commonly passed down from generation to generation, that because of the way food is produced nowadays, and it's been so hugely corporatized, Mm -hmm. um, people don't really...
2: People are happy to be unaware of what they're eating. Yeah. Well, the tradition's been broken. Like, that line has been broken.
3: That's a really awful thing. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we want to get people back into understanding. uh, Through the books we write, through... The posts and and things that we uh, talk about is that the most basic transformative process that that you as a human being can do is to metabolize food, right? And in order to metabolize food, you need to know what a microbiome is. You need to know why it can go wrong, too. So that's where we, we like try and emphasize. Microbiology and the microbiome stuff, uh, um, and how you can actually do things like create your own pro- probiotics and prebiotics to be able to better transform stuff. Um, always with the, the understanding that, listen, one of the greatest pleasures in life is eating food. And we, we have the same attitude towards alcohol, too. It's like, you know, <laughs> these things are. Uh, really wonderful things that you know you should be able to know individually what you can and cannot tolerate or what you do or don't want to do and the further your distance from how something is actually made um, the more difficult it is is to actually understand that and uh, we're we're convinced that most um, chronic illnesses somehow have a link to Uh, breaking that tradition uh, you can really create yourself uh, a much better functioning uh, system if you know what you're eating what you're putting in stuff so we emphasize things like nutrition uh, uh, microbiome Uh, we're also very 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 interested in the whole process of uh, aging and um, particularly dysphagia as well uh, you know, I mean, if, if, if you go and look at, uh, 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 like, cohorts of people with, like, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or, you know, any other um, uh, chronic illness, you're going to see that, like, 89, 90% of them can't eat, right? And they're basically starving to death. And we have all these, have all these chefs out there, right? We have all these artisans out there who know uh, how to do these things to help people, right, if if they just learn um, how to how to do it. So we really want to, like, um, stress to them, okay, listen, it's wonderful you have all these skills in making these fabulous types of foods, etc. Think about, oh, you should always think about why you're doing this in the first place, right? All right? Why are you doing this as a chef? Be, uh, other than to, like, make money, okay? Because, um... You know, in this world, you have to make money, usually, right? But uh, we think that it's really important, just as part of the whole your whole karmic existence in life, that um, it's you should always be giving back because we all have these, we've all been, we've all really been blessed with these incredible gifts from nature, and how we treat them is just—it's really kind of uh, awful what we're doing when we could really be helping not only ourselves but each other even more I mean we've got all these people out there who are very talented who would say okay I'm going to like lacto-ferment something that's loaded with prebiotics and using the skills that I've learned from understanding what transformative processes I can direct through the use of yeasts and like molds and enzymes that I can create as a, an artisan or as a chef, uh, I can make something that 's already broken down into this really rich, accessible food, and we can, we can make sure anyone can eat it, anyone can have access to it based on whether or not you know they can 't really swallow things anymore I mean you know, how hard it is it to strain something right? The entire general population, like one in five of them is currently suffering from dysphagia, right? One in five is an astonishing number, right? And if I didn't, like, one of the things I do on a regular basis is go up to the the ENT clinic at uh, Mount Sinai, for example, Mm -hmm. where in the last five years alone, you know, people who used to suffer from mouth or tongue or throat or cancers from HIV. uh now in the last five years we've seen like thousand percent increases in the number of people who are actually not only dying but suffering from everything from dysphagia to the need to have huge portions of their body cut out yeah. because of cancers yeah. so that's another reason why we think it's really really important that we apply what we know about these transformative processes that we know about uh probiotics and prebiotics and creating good food to make them available because maybe that'll also draw people out because dysphagia is one of the things that no one ever
1: really talks about absolutely, right? absolutely. So, so it's great that it's on and there's information on culturesgroup.net
3: yeah
2: as well as the facebook group
1: uh
3: you can go to culturesgroup.net first of all okay online um you can just hit anything that has at Cultures Group with it, like on Twitter, on um, Pinterest even. Uh, actually, Facebook, you can find us at uh, Aspergillus or uh, Cultures Group or Ecology. One of those three things. Yeah. Now, if
2: people are more interested, um, do you have some place that they could get more information or if they want to become more involved in the project? What yeah, is the we best would, way?
3: We would love them to become more involved. I mean... Um, We're currently trying to put together three different books, and uh, one of them is called Swallow, actually. Swallow the book. And it's all about... We're encouraging people to uh, think about, like... and uh, Most of the people, like my age, for example, have parents who are, are, like, probably undergoing one or... You know, some having difficulties with dysphagia for example or suffering from a specific illness and we really want to write this one book so that people can use this information to make it easy to provide them with like nutritious food that doesn't come from a can because I, I don't know if you know about that can stuff but yeah. it's usually like a little bit sugar fructose, mm-hmm. oil yeah, and course, like, yeah. whatever it is and, and so many vitamins that. The, also, also the thing too that we really want to emphasize um, is that we want people to have fun. We want people to enjoy themselves because there's nothing you can do to stop the transformative process of life, right? Right. And the idea is to like enjoy it as much as you can. And um, if there's any way that we can help people to access tools to do that better, that's, that's what we're all about, right? I mean, everyone who's involved with us is... Is either a chef, right, or who knows how to do something specifically um, because they were taught by their, like, grandparents, for example, right? Um, and we really want, it, want to be like a, a, more like a clearinghouse center where people can get information as well as inspiration, they can share with each other, and they can use what they know uh, at, to be activists for themselves and for other people as well. Their friends,
2: their family, their community.
3: You know, the whole industrialization of of the food that we're creating in this country is just, it's really not, not a good thing. We want people to get back into the whole, like, we want people to know how to support a family farmer, for example, or a family farm, or somebody who's doing something small as opposed to huge because, um, usually, uh, The people who are doing something small are not going to be requiring, um, you know, chemicals to do what they're doing, right? So, yeah, so, I mean, we need lawyers, we need writers, we need researchers, we need (laughs) microbiologists, we need people who just, like, really want to do things like, you know, work on... Educating each other I mean we need writers We need mm-hmm. Experimenters
2: So how do they contact so, you uh, If they want to get more involved
3: Yeah d- Just cultures group At earthlink.net okay, Perfect Or they can, the, the other thing they can do Also is like If you Go to Culturesgroup.net And follow us We'll have your Info mm-hmm. And then you well. have e- An
2: email list as well Or Our developing one yeah. Awesome yeah. Well thank you so much For sure. being yeah, on awesome. <laughs> Yeah And And um and we'll continue. We'd love to follow you through the journey. So we will right. definitely be back in touch with you at some point. Um, thanks to all of you who are listening out there. And we'll be back next week on the Femenna. Right. Thanks, Jen.
3: Thanks.